Hello and welcome to the Native and the Transplant. I'm your native, Alex Johnson. And I'm your transplant, Jen Bryant. Jen, another week, another episode. How are you? I'm good. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, it was a real well, busy week. Always seems to be the case. Yeah. Which is sometimes a good thing, sometimes not so much. <laughs> well, I'm sleeping really well, so <laughs> good with me. Oh, uh, that's a good thing. All right. So for this episode, we do have a recap as far as the railroad is concerned. And then we do have a couple of things. It looks like Loveland City Council and Popcorn Time always got a little bit heated because of the Trust Commission, what they came out with, and how how a few of the counselors reacted to it. Yeah, I'm a little tired of popcorn from that group. Yeah. And then, uh, unfortunately, we did lose a Weld County deputy on Sunday. We're going to dive into to that and ultimately dive into immigration because it's top of mind for an awful lot of people right now. And after this tragedy, we need to talk about it. Yeah, we, we really do. All right. So first and foremost, let's definitely dive into the railroad situation. <laughs> Yeah, what a mess. Oh, man, oh, man. So there is, as we recorded last week, there was minimal, minimal on mainstream media. They were pretty much silent until we actually uploaded our episode. And then the next two days, it blew up and was everywhere. And everybody was congratulating, hey, we we stopped the strike from happening. We've got an agreement that all 12 of the unions agree on it. It could not be further from the truth. Yeah, it's all and this is smoke a, and mirrors. It is. It's absolutely smoke and mirrors. So what did actually happen is there is a essentially a handshake agreement right now between the three unions that were holding out and the um, the Biden administration as well as the railroads. Yeah, it's all a handshake agreement. They do not have an actual document of the contract that they shook on. Yeah, I think that's really important for everybody to note is that there it, the agreement hasn't even been written. Correct. And so it's just even the timeline that they're looking at right now to be able to get the written contract so they can actually move forward. And if the unions agree to the written contract to then take it to a vote, they're talking three to four weeks before they have the written contract. And then if it, if they choose to move forward and bring it up to a vote, then that voting process takes an additional three to four weeks. Correct. And that voting process is being sent out to the rank and file of this 110,000 conductors and engineers that this will directly affect. Correct. So all they did was kick the, all the Biden administration did on this one was they kicked the can down the road till after the midterms. 100%. It's, it's going to be right before Thanksgiving too. So then you get the public opinion on, well, you can't strike because you're going to shut down our country before a major holiday. That and then what happens with Black Friday, all of this stuff. So yeah. the whole thing on this is looking at it from a 30,000-foot view, mm -hmm. it's all BS. Absolutely. It, the entire thing was a manipulation of the administration and politics getting involved instead of actually siding with the workers that – this isn't, and we went in depth last week on this strike wasn't for, you know, it wasn't greed. It wasn't, you know, it was the fact that we want to be able to lay off and take 15 unpaid days to be able to go to a doctor's appointment. Yeah. This is what was on the table. And the fact that the railroads have the money, have, we can already see that they bought and paid for the politicians. And they're the most profitable business in the country. 
Well, there's actually studies coming out saying they are incredibly profitable. I, they are incredibly profitable. I wouldn't say that they are number one. Um, I think pharmaceuticals, especially over the last two years, would probably have that. Uh, kind of, kind of. And I would tend to agree with you on that, but I mean, they bring in quite a bit of profit. Oh, absolutely. You're talking a hundred billion dollars a year in, in profit. Um, and that's per rail line. That's not, not yeah. everything as, as a whole that is per individual rail. So looking at everything, I just ask you to keep, keep your ear out, understand what's actually going on and how it is being pushed out to again, try and make these engineers and conductors look like the bad guys yeah. where this, they've basically been strong armed to not strike until after the midterms. Everything has become political, just as everything else in society right now, it has become political. Right. And those that have bought and paid for the politicians are the ones that are, are reaping the benefit of it at the moment. Well, and one of the big things to take note of is that um, the ratification ballots, which is essentially when they ratify it, they're accepting it and saying, yes, we're, we're okay with this is what's happening here. But those ballots went out two days ago, and they have an October 9th deadline to submit those ballots. Now, I don't know about you, but speaking to several people that I know that work for the railways, have worked for the railways, all of that are basically saying, you know, we don't even know what's going to be in this agreement, and you're expecting us to agree to it? Yeah. And there is still, you know, 40 to 50 percent. And, and that's pretty, um, it, you know, who knows if that's actually the really really the number. But 40 to 50 percent, apparently, of these people are saying we're not going to agree to this and we are either going to strike or we're going to walk out. And you're absolutely right. They kick the can down the road. This yeah. is the, your BS is the only way to describe this, because this is going to affect over 110,000 families. This is a nationwide <laughs> crisis potential. Yeah, this is all they did was they staved off a strike for 2 months. Yeah, that's all. And looking at everything that's coming up, I you talk about this is affecting, you know, 95 to 110,000 families. This is affecting every single family in America. Oh, 100%. Every single industry, every single family, every single job. Everything that is a product in this country, which of course we're, you know, we have to hunt or gather, we have to get our food and we have to have access to products and, and goods. And you're 100% correct. Yeah. And this is like, it's like we kind of brought up, um, industries that they have to have material to be able to produce goods that are critical to power and food and every, I mean, it's everything. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I yeah. know this is what's really frustrating about it too, is that the rail workers know that this is exactly what's happening. And how disgusting is that, that the people in this country that literally make the country run are the ones that are going to be highly affected by this. And nobody's talking about it. Yeah. I mean, some a little bit, but. And we're going to keep on this. Um, again, we still have our contacts that we've been talking to on a weekly basis as we led up to last Friday and then as we continue, um, just keeping you guys up to speed as far as what is going on yeah. and kind of the, the rumblings on what we can kind of anticipate. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, this is incredibly frustrating. The whole thing. I'm just mad about it. <laughs> I'm just mad about it. I don't know. Yeah. So, all right, well, let's get to popcorn time in Loveland good old Loveland city council. 
Yeah. So they, one thing that they had put forward was a trust commission. And we had spoken about it about a year ago is because of the Karen Gardner case, because of everything that had been going on with LPD, um, with all of the issues going on within the city in, in particular with law enforcement is, um, and even Don Overcash and Mayor Marsh, they wanted to put together a trust commission to be able to sit down, understand how can we move forward and how can we move forward for the betterment of all, as well as to allow LPD and really the Loveland administration to be able to, to get some trust back from the people and say, how can we move this forward and move forward together in a effective manner? Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, that was not the case at all. Sure. Doesn't seem like it. (laughs) No. So, um, I guess they put out their final report on the, at the regular city council meeting this Tuesday. Um, and there were four members of the committee. It was, um, Sarah Mayer, uh, Catherine Barrett, Aaron Black, and Shane Vick, who presented to uh, the city council, basically, here's our recommendations. So what did they recommend? Um, they basically said, you know, they kind of did an overview of what they've been doing for the last 12 months. And remember, this was a volunteer committee. So they've spent hundreds of hours really, really trying to get a beat on what the city of Loveland wants. They sent out surveys. They talked to people. They talked to leaders business owners, all of that stuff. And they came up basically. Um, so, and they did lose some of their members that stepped down just because probably, you know, yeah. life. Right. Um, but they, um, oh, and they also collected responses at city events, farmers markets, 4th of July celebrations, the concert series at the foot lagoon. So people that are out and about in the community that they need to keep or earn the trust back from. So, uh, let's see city they people really liked the fire department they said the library the recycling center everything was great but weren't there mainly three main points or so that they brought up as far as what can be done yeah um and i think it's i'm trying to pull that up but let's see okay so the very first thing that they actually wanted to they asked the city council to do was to formally apologize to karen garner's family now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the gentleman who intervened on Karen Garner's behalf during the arrest was given an award as a thank you for helping her. Yeah. The city council refused to let it take place in the city council chamber- chambers. They said no. So it's done at the foot lagoon. Okay, step one. Are we serious? I mean, come on, really? I'm trying to play devil's advocate with you on that one as Dude. far as it's difficult at that point in time, the LPD messed up royally on all different levels. And we've, we've spoken about that at nauseum. Um, but to say, Hey, thank you for being a, a good civil human being and stepping in where you saw something was going wrong, even though you are stepping into a situation with police. Yeah. The fact that the city council wouldn't allow that to take place, it would have been, this is the ironic part is if they would have allowed it to take place, it would have probably taken three minutes of the city council's time mm-hmm. and nobody would be talking about it. Right. Exactly. But the fact that they put a stop to it now, all of a sudden, everybody knows about it and all it did was shine a, a bad light on city council yet again. 
Right. Exactly. That's, that's precisely the point. I mean, come on, they, just allow it to happen. And actually they were asking for the Loveland police department to apologize to Karen Garner's family, not for the city council. I just wanted to clarify that because that's what I initially said, but it was for them to actually formally apologize. And they said, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, I want to, I want to, Talk about that for just a second. You know, in medical malpractice suits, one of the first things that usually comes up in those suits is that somebody says, you know, if if that person who inflicted this harm upon me had actually come and explained what happened and that they were sorry, I wouldn't have filed a lawsuit. Yep. Now, I'm not saying that Karen, Karen Garner's family would have done that. I, I feel like there was a lot more damage uh, in that case, but that is like step one. Yeah, and it's it's taking responsibility, and that's one of the things that unfortunately, really over the last decade, decade and a half, we've stopped seeing, and we've stopped seeing it at the highest level. Yeah. Um, you know, growing up, and I think I've shared this before, growing up, it was always, even whether it was under George H.W. Bush, whether it was under Clinton, whether it was under W. Bush, it always, there was always an air of the buck stops here. Mm-hmm. The buck stops with me. And the frustration that I had, one of the biggest frustrations that I had right when Obama took office, after he campaigned for two years, was he took office and then said, look at what I inherited. And he kicked the can, kicked the blame. Instead of just stepping up and saying, you know what? I, yeah, I inherited this, but the buck stops with me now. I can now take the opportunity to correct these issues and be able to move forward. But ever since that point, we've seen it happen with mayors. We've seen it happen with governors. We've seen it happen with city council. We've seen it happen all downstream uh, as far as our elected officials where they refuse to take blame. They refuse to accept and acknowledge that they were in the wrong Yeah, and being able to speak to it and just say, I'm sorry, you were hurt. We wronged you. This is what we're doing to make it better. This is what we're doing to make sure that we prevent this from happening, from it happening to somebody else. But the fact that our elected officials, the fact that our peace officers cannot just say, I'm sorry, truly genuinely mean, I'm sorry that this occurred and this is how we can improve to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Right. That's a basic accountability as adults, we have to have accountability for our own actions. And if we're not going to be taking that accountability, then we need to not be in the position of authority. It's sort of like that adage where you say, well, you can delegate um, authority, but not responsibility. Yeah. So if somebody's not willing to step up and take responsibility for their actions, then they should not be in a position of authority. Agreed. (laughs) This is just, I mean, even with, um, Tyser, stepping down and going to another position. He didn't take accountability for anything. No. And that makes me so angry. It makes me so angry. Anyway. Okay. So here were kind of their major recommendations. Um, so they basically said they'd like to see, um, additional training for officers and policy changes. And they also re- uh, recommended that, um, they form a nine point code of contact, uh, conduct. I'm sorry. That would be enforced by a body compromised of city staff. So basically, you have a code of conduct that you have to adhere to or you do not work for the Loveland Police Department. I I have a question. Shouldn't that have already been in place? <laughs> you would think, and my assumption is that there is probably something that is already in place because, again, they have to swear an oath of office. Um, 
you would think that there would be a certain level of integrity and uh, certain aspects that you have to meet to be able to be a peace officer. Well, and I believe that there should be as well, and I, I believe that there is. It's just whether or not it's actually happening. And I know far more on the sheriff's side, they definitely have it. Oh, for sure. But on the local municipalities, as far as LPD is concerned, I would assume that they would have it. But I'm also questioning what are the nine things yeah. and why was there such an issue over it? Right, because then this whole thing sort of disintegrated into a hot mess. I do want to say something good about peace officers, though. I have a very good friend of mine that is a sheriff in a municipality in Colorado. Um, and he he had just left a call. And as he left the call, these kids waved him down because they were so excited to see him. And he stopped and he was giving him stickers and doing all this stuff. And some Karen came by and was like, why are you harassing these kids? And he was like, well, I, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> and as a oh, matter of fact, the kids man. were like, what are you talking about? And he sort of sent her on her own way. But, uh, boy, you know, I really do feel terrible for these, pol- these police officers and sheriffs that are out there that are working really, really hard to establish trust with their communities because it, our kids and even adults need to know that the, they're out there to protect us. Yeah. The unfortunate aspect, and we've, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends that are, are on a police force or uh, different levels within Colorado. And even when we had um, both the sheriff candidates on and talking with them, there is a lot of very good peace officers in the world. The frustration that I have is there needs to be a better way to be able to rid these departments of the bad cops. And a code of conduct? that is governed by the city council that says you will adhere to this or you do not work for us is a beautiful way to do that. Yeah. So apparently several or some city council members, uh, notably Dana Foley, and I'm not sure Don Overcash hasn't been directly mentioned, but sort of in a vague, he ran from air kind of way. Um, basically they said that they were skeptical of this code of ethics and, um, they did not believe the results of these surveys. So they're saying, you know, this is skewed data and there's discrepancies in the data. Um, interestingly enough, no Fogel said that quite a bit as well. Fogel did. Um, interestingly enough, um, there, uh, those three apparently became very, very angry. And as well as the, trust council committee members became very angry. Multiple members of the trust council removed their badges, threw them on the table and stormed out. And it sounds like, um, Lori's veto ward, um, she actually did write a letter to the council and basically said, this is, what are you doing? We're, we're trying to present it and we're trying to do it in a respectful manner. And you're yelling at us and telling that every it's wrong and that we don't really know what's going on. I mean, come on. That's how we treat our trust commission. And these are volunteers. These are members yeah. of the community that volunteered their time, went through a thorough vetting process to be on these. I know several of them personally, and I know them to be very good people. Um, and I'm pretty frustrated for them. Actually, not even frustrated for them. I'm frustrated for the city of Loveland because the city council members of the city council, because to note Jackie Marsh and Andrea Sampson, Mayor Marsh, they both were really thankful for their work and telling them, you know, we appreciate this and we're going to look at this stuff. So Jackie did call for a, um, I want to make sure I have the right, uh, terminology, but they called, she went to propose a rule of four motion to direct the city manager's office to study how to implement the plans from the 
trust commission. And then other council members basically said, we're not doing that. And they rejected the rule of four and said, um, you know, they want to go to further action, but, um, they, apparently there was a pretty vigorous, it's described in the reporter Herald, a vigorous discussion. So it sounds like it was kind of a hot mess. Yeah. Did you catch any of that meeting? I caught bits and pieces of it. And I've been, I've been... 12 hour days, so I haven't <laughs> even, I didn't even know about this until an hour ago. Um, yeah, my, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up is because I have been catching bits and pieces of it. I've watched a good portion of it and just the manner and mannerisms on how, there wasn't even mutual respect Correct. when they were at council and they were having this discussion. You know what bothers me about this is this is not the first time that this has happened. We're talking multiple occasions where members of the city council that were voted in are treating their constituents like they're stupid, inadequate, or they just don't know what they're talking about because they're not on the city council. Yeah, and I will say that that's not just Lumberland oh, City Council. Yeah, that's, that's everywhere. You talk, yeah. uh, and again, I've run in a couple of different circles just due to the fact of my campaigns that I've ran and the people that I've had the opportunity to meet. And it's, it's frustrating how many elected officials believe that they, since they were elected, it's their ideas, it's their way, and they don't need to, to actually speak to any of the people that they represent. Right. And this is some of the things that is happening at the state level. This is happening at the local level where they don't really care. And unfortunately, there's some pretty bad politicians that they don't care what their constituents actually care about. They don't care what they think. They don't care what they're going through. It's what can we push through? What agendas do we have? And I mean, shoot, here in Berthet. The fact that they're talking about banning oil and gas when that's over half the revenue of the town and they right. don't even have an idea on how they're going to replace the revenue. It's stuff like that that it gives these elected officials this air of confidence that thinks that they're better than somebody else. Yeah, that grandiosity, right? Now, I, that's not to say that the city council members don't care about Loveland. I would not put words in anybody's mouth because I believe that – Pretty much everybody goes into office to make a difference, especially at your local level. I want to believe that. Okay. <laughs> Rose colored glasses. <laughs> I understand that. But what I mean by that though is I don't, I don't want to say that any of the council members didn't have their reasons for objecting to it. But I think the fact that it disintegrated that quickly and that it became so vitreous is, is problematic because that what that says is that there's something that's stopping these people from understanding you know, I don't know about you, but I, I don't, I did not take this survey or anything. Uh, I was not contacted, but, um, I feel like what needs to be noted is they really went out and talked to these people's constituents. Yeah. My, my favorite part about all of this is the irony in it yeah. and just the fact that part of the reason why this trust council was put together, why they've been working for the last year is to be able to look at police officers that that don't de-escalate but escalate situations. Right. And then in their final report, both parties, so city council and the trust commission, escalated the situation and did not de-escalate it. Right. And part of the things that they did put in for um, some recommendations from the trust commission was – you know, co-responders and training for officers and things that would really make a difference. Because I don't know about you, but downtown Loveland has been a hot mess lately. 
it, it's, you know, there's yeah. real danger that you have to be concerned about right now. And, and I think some of these things that they're suggesting would really make a difference. Yeah. I, and you know, the Loveland police department doesn't have an easy job. Certainly not right now. And I think that's happening all over the country. Very much so. And we're starting to see more and more vandalism. I mean, shoot, how many churches the day after Roe v. Wade was overturned yeah. got uh, vandalized. And then even this morning, you had the Lamar County GOP up in Fort Collins that they got vandalized. And so you can see this this growing tension throughout our communities. And this is at a local level as well. Where we're supposed to be neighbors, we're supposed to care about one another in in the small towns that we live in. I mean, a hundred thousand people is yeah, it's a lot of people, but it's not that big, and we're supposed to be able to actually, you know, be neighborly. <laughs> well, and Colorado is like a mecca for a lot of people. This is a wonderful place to live, but we're not seeing that right now. It's it's becoming kind of like I said, it's kind of becoming scary. You know, even if you just are watching all of the violence that's sort of erupting everywhere, we're seeing a very heightened sense of stress and, and fear. Yeah. And it's compounding. And unfortunately this is only going to get worse. And this isn't a very bright and cheerful podcast. <laughs> no. Um, but even one of the other things that we want to talk about kind of our, our next story and kind of our main story is the world County deputy. Correct. So Alexis, uh, hind, hind nuts, uh, she was 24 years old, had been on the um, Weld County Sheriff's Department for the last four years. She was a week away from her 25th birthday, and she she died tragically in a hit and run on Sunday. Yeah, the really frustrating. I mean, she's a graduate from 2016 from Loveland High, and by all accounts, she was an amazing officer and an amazing person. You know, this is it's really tragic because. You know, when you have officers out there that are making a difference and that are really working hard to to impact their community in a positive way, and we've lost her because of an illegal immigrant who has quite the rap sheet. Yeah, yeah. The they have them in custody, and again, it's the the frustration with this is our judicial system as it is right now, and the fact that he has multiple DUIs has been deported once before is back and is now trying to plea bargain to be able to get a lower sentence, to be able to be deported again. Correct. So he can just come on back. Yeah. He, he is being held right now in a $500,000 bond. Um, and apparently this is not the first time he's left the scene of an accident and he has multiple DUIs. So after the accident occurs, people are trying to assist her and he's literally running through a cornfield to escape yeah. Come on. Yeah. And the unfortunate aspect is this is, this is a growing issue that is not being addressed. And this is something that you have to put the blame where the blame lies. And it's with our current administration. Agreed. <clears throat> the Biden administration, when they came in, as far as the stack of, of executive orders, most of them overturned the Trump administration. Uh, rules as far as um, Title 42, a lot of the other rules as far as immigration was concerned, the stay in Mexico policy, you had all of these policies that were in place, even building the wall. And you look at everything that was going on where we were actually at the lowest number of illegal immigrants at the end of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And then almost overnight, those got turned off 
And now we're seeing this flood and we're seeing constantly where the big news story is everything that happened with Martha's Vineyard with the 48 or 50 illegal immigrants that got sent there on a private jet from Florida, from uh, DeSantis. And they called in within 48 hours, uh, Martha's Vineyard called in the National Guard to come and help them with 50 people. So I could actually kind of see a little bit on that because it's a fairly small community and they actually had relocated them to this church in Martha's Vineyard and it was not big enough or adequate enough to support all of these people. So I can see that actually wasn't a bad move, I don't think. But um, if you're going to be a sanctuary state, you might want to be more prepared. Yes. So, and that was just the, the icing on the cake with all of the buses that have been sent to New York City, to Washington DC, to Chicago, all of the places that are sanctuary cities. Yeah. And you look at everybody's right now, there's the grumblings that they're going to be suing or trying to, there was the one sheriff that said that he wants to charge uh, Ron DeSantis with kidnapping. Mm-hmm. But you, if you do a little bit of research and understand the rules and the laws that they put in place, that Florida is not a sanctuary state. They've put it out there. It is on the record. It's on the books. They are not a sanctuary state and they will ship illegal immigrants. They will either deport them or they will ship them to sanctuary states. They're doing everything that they need to do by Florida state law. Well, the problem is, is this is a pretty double-edged sword because People coming into these countries most of the time. Now, I'm not, I don't really know numbers. You might have some numbers pulled up on this, but, um, I think that there are a lot of cases, especially like we see with this officer in Greeley that was killed by somebody that was deported and charged on multiple things, sent out of the country is not to return to the country. And of course, they're going to make their way back across the border and then they start committing these crimes. Yeah. But then you also have the side of that where there are people that are, you know, seeking asylum that are in very, very dangerous areas, Mexico, I mean, all the way down in the, you know, Southern part of the Americas into these, into South America, there are some very dangerous things happening. Venezuela, Guatemala. Yeah. I mean, Chile, there's a lot of really, really rough things going on. I know the cartel has really made a big rise in those areas and people are leaving because they do fear for their families to some extent. Um, so I've got one question for you. Absolutely. Why is it that every single other country on this earth is able to protect their borders, but yet we're, America is bad if they protect their borders? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, I would say that probably the idea behind that is that it's the American dream to come here and, and take care of your family and really be able to be safe and to have inalienable, inalienable rights that protect your families. Granted, that works against us in a couple of ways because we want people to come and immigrate to America and do it in the right way. So that's where I think the problem lies. Yeah. And right now, so for 2022 already this year, over 2 million illegal immigrants have crossed over into this country. Well, and a vetting process is in place. However, when you were inundated with over 2 million Im- illegal immigrants in one year and we're in September. So yeah. when you're inundated, there are going to be things that slip through the cracks. Very much so. And so this is what's what you, you may like DeSantis, you may like Abbott, you may hate them. It's an interesting 
it's an interesting viewpoint, at least right now, being able to see how when they take 8,000 illegal immigrants into Chicago, mm-hmm. how Chicago is not equipped to be able to handle it. And they're wanting to call in the National Guard. They're wanting to call in a bunch of people. They're wanting to say how horrible this is. We didn't have notice, all of this stuff. But you look at like El Paso mm-hmm. with 650,000 people and yet – they have a swarm of 100,000, 200,000 illegal immigrants that are coming in and mums the word. Correct. This is, and I'm not trying to be insensitive here. It is understanding and shining the light that if it's such a big deal in New York City or Washington, D.C. or in Chicago, you need to understand that it is a much bigger deal on the border towns. You look at California, you look at Arizona, you look at New Mexico, you look at Texas, and what they are going through right now because of the illegal immigration problem and then how that filters into right here in northern Colorado. This is not the first instance that we've had uh, dealings with this. Uh, A few years back we had – what was the gang? MS-13. Yeah. We had a couple of shootings that were gang-related, MS-13, gang-related illegal immigrants that were killing citizens over in Greeley and in Evans. And so this is not the first time that this has happened, but it's becoming exponentially worse. And this is as everything else is going on as well, where we have higher inflation. The Fed just raised the interest rates by three-quarter of a point yet again. And so you look at all of the stuff that is stacking on top of it, off on top of each other. So it brings me to the question of when does it either break or how can we stop it from breaking? Well, I'm going to be real honest here. A wall is not going to stop this. I understand the concept and then the, you know, even the sort of like a physical wall and a metaphorical wall, right? The thing is, is that it, and while I, I understand why people say, okay, we got to stop this at our borders. These things have to happen. The border control needs to have more power. We have to, you know, really slow down the flow of people into the country because it is causing a heavy burden on, you know, the taxpayers of the country. I totally understand that. But to some extent, you do have to bring in the compassion argument. People are swimming across oceans. They are riding in tiny little rafts. They are willing to risk their lives in the back of a truck with 56 people crammed in there and they're dying in trucks. There has to be a reason why they want to come here. And we do have to consider that there are good people that are coming over here that work hard. I mean, I know people that came over on visas or green cards that were sending their entire paycheck back to their families and living in total poverty so that they could support their families and work to one by one get every one of those people over the border and into safety because we do represent that. So I totally understand that. But at some point we have to ask the question, where could we improve this system and make it less tedious and more effective? Yeah. You know, we got 87,000 new IRS agents coming. How come we didn't do that with border agents and ICE agents? Let's do that and make this process a little more beneficial and and streamlined for the people that can come here and that do want to take part in the country, but also so that we can make sure that like this guy doesn't make it back in. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. So when I ran for Congress in, in 2020, this was actually one of the things that I ran on as far as overall immigration. 
And it's interesting statistics, and we don't have the updated statistics on it, but back in 2020, 70% of illegal immigrants came here legally. Mm-hmm. And they've overstayed a visa. Mm-hmm. They've had a, a, you know, something happened with school, something happened with their job, something of that sort caused them to fall out of the system. Yeah. So as far as one of the easiest things that we can truly do at the federal level to take an awful lot of the burden off of the illegal immigrants, at least 70% of them, is to do a moratorium and just simply state, hey, for whatever reason, you've overstayed your visa, we will give you one year, get back into the system, we'll give you a year-long or a two-year-long visa, so that way you're back in the system, everything, we can make you whole again mm-hmm. as far as a a part of society and to be able to move forward and then at that point in time once we can streamline 70 percent of it then we can actually focus on the 30 percent that is the biggest issue right wouldn't it, it be beautiful if we could give those families just a little bit of relief from the fear that they have of being deported back to a place that is completely unsafe for them absolutely and you can't tell me that we don't have the money for it when we just spent a hundred billion dollars over in ukraine Right. I, I concur with that more than I can even express. I mean, it's it's a very frustrating thing because it's really, I mean, immigration really is not about get them all out of our country. We don't want them here. That's what makes America beautiful is is the diversity and, and the, you know, the cool different cultures that we get to interact with because they're part of our country. You know what I mean? And really, American culture is made American culture by all of the diversity that we have makes it awesome. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm picking, I'm going to a Mexican restaurant. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. But (laughs) what I mean by that though, is that this process that currently is taking place and we, how many thousands of people were at the border that were living in tent cities in the middle of COVID because they could not get approvals or visas or any of those things to come into the country, but they were so desperate to leave their countries that they were willing to live in true squalor just to get here. So it frustrates me because then when you have something like this guy that clearly has been deported, that has been taken out of the country, that is, you know, has inflicted this horror onto our community, how do you fix that? Yeah. At that point in time, start suing the Biden administration. I mean, and it's not just the Biden administration. If if any administration is allowing people to come in and they aren't doing their job as an administration of, of maintaining our borders, then at that point in time, if I was the family of, of this young deputy, I'd be suing the Biden administration because I mean, it is the fault of the federal government. That is one of the few jobs of the federal government is securing borders. Right. And that's something that we obviously have placed as a, a – important thing to our country at this point. And, you know, you said it best earlier, but it was like going back to Obama and presidents before him, they're kicking the can down the road. They don't want to take responsibility for this. And it's affecting our communities and our families. And, and, you know, they're, I cannot imagine being afraid that one day somebody's going to show up at my door and take me away from my children because I'm not from this country, but my children are okay. I have no idea where they're going to go. I cannot imagine that feeling. Well, and all of the issues with CPS as of late as well, it just, it, it, that's why I go back to this is a compounding problem and it's not just happening 
you know, in other areas of the country. This is happening right here in Northern Colorado. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so trying to be able to, to understand, you know, this goes back to the trust, trust commission and city council. It's the fact of not being able to actually come to the table and have a conversation without the, without the emotion taking over, and at that point in time, nothing gets solved where right. this is happening. This is happening down at the state house. This is happening in the federal government. The fact that people from across the aisle, it's become so political that we can't even have the, the discussions and the conversations that we need to, to actually try and solve some of these problems. It's to, to allow this level of illegal immigration to occur it's not fair to American citizens, but it's also not fair to the illegal immigrants. Agreed. It's putting everybody in a horrible situation. And for somebody who's saying that, oh, we, we need to do this and it's a caring aspect, it's really not. Because then all of a sudden you have all of these illegal immigrants that truly have become political pawns. Oh, 100%. Being shipped everywhere. But then also on the flip side, you have the the – Illegal immigrants that were shipped to Martha's Vineyard, they're now suing Ron DeSantis. They're now suing a sitting governor, an illegal immigrant who came to this nation illegally, is now suing a sitting governor. Well, let me play a little devil's advocate on that. I think I might do the same thing because they came in and they were told that they were going to be taken care of. And you're going to go to a sanctuary city and we're going to help you get all the paperwork and everything you need to do. And hey, by the way... We're using you as a political pawn to send you across the country to somewhere you have zero resources. You don't have any way of solving any problems, but all these promises have been made to you. And now you're sent somewhere where they're just going to basically put you in a compound. They sent them to a sanctuary city. <laughs> that should have been. What you're saying. They sent them to a sanctuary city or a sanctuary state. At that point in time, if you want to be a sanctuary city or a sanctuary state, by with the funds that you received from the federal government. You are required to take care of these people. Yeah. Required. Otherwise, any city within a state that is a sanctuary state and the city refuses to take care of them, then they have to pay back all of the federal funds that was given to the entire state. That is how the law is written. Well, I suppose if they paid, paid for it with the National Guard. I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate so, here, but you know what's really sad about this whole thing, Alex, is this is grandstanding from these politicians. Oh, absolutely. And they really, truly, I don't know, DeSantis, whoever, these sanctuary cities, it doesn't matter. Dems, Republicans, I don't care who, you, what side of the aisle you're on. Everybody coming up to this election is grandstanding so much, and they truly are using all of us as political pawns. Absolutely. That's what's disgusting about this whole thing yeah. too. And I just, I mean, of course I'm going to have a heart for those people who came here really seeking out something that, that we have. And it just makes me really sad because then now these people, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? And, and truthfully, DeSantis and all these people in Martha's Vineyard, everything, those people are playing this little BS game that's essentially saying we don't actually care about any of these human lives. We care about what we look like and what our constituents are going to do and if they're going to give us money or vote us back in. <laughs> you speak of money. And so there was a essentially like a GoFundMe that was set up to be able to help the Im immigrants in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Raise $43,000. 
The $43,000 has gone into the local community fund within Martha's Vineyard. Not a single cent went to any of the illegal immigrants. Not a single cent. Of course not, but it made you all, look good. All of the $43,000 is now within their overall local community fund to be able to put on their parades and put on their, their little events throughout the summer. Yeah, I wonder so what you the... just gave the wealthiest people uh, yeah. in the nation – $43,000 from hard-earned, you know, hard-earned money from people all across the nation gave money to the wealthiest community, and now they just put it in the bank and said, hey, thanks, we appreciate the forty-three grand." Yeah, Nancy Pelosi's vineyard is in Martha's Vineyard, isn't it? Her business. I have no idea. She, that You know, these people are making so much money off of us, and they're making us all look like horrible people. I mean, what do we look like to the rest of the world right now? Awful. This is this is disgusting. This is not who the American people are. Unfortunately, our quote representatives are not representing us for anything. No. Total BS. No. So, <laughs> good transition point as far as we do have the midterms that are coming up. We sure do. One of the things that I've been saying constantly is vote them all out. Every single one. Anybody who's been in office the last couple of years that has caused these problems, vote them all out. Judges, councilmen, I don't care who. Get it, them out. It's to the point now that we need a we need fresh people, people that aren't jaded, that aren't bought and paid for by the lobbyists, that aren't so ingrained within the political system. And making money <laughs> off of the backs of American people. Pardon me. We need new people that aren't so ingrained within the political system that we can actually get what we, the people, want accomplished. Yeah, I'm telling you, you know, it's really interesting. Um, just kind of on a side note, I, I was reading this article that said, you know, we had all these Republican candidates that ran. And, you know, we had that we had that um, kind of it was like divisive. You had the one candidate who super outspoken Trump should be the president, abortion, horrible, all of these things. And they ran on these heavy, heavy platforms. And a lot of those people did not get voted into office. Or voted through the primary. Yeah, through the primaries. Yes, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, just to clarify there. But then the people who did make it through are now kind of stepping back from all of those strong views because they know that that's not going to get them elected. Yeah. That should tell you right there at the very core of it that these politicians probably don't even believe in the platforms they're running on. They're running on what they believe is going to get them elected. Oh, absolutely. Every single political candidate does that. But it's way more obvious right now. <laughs> so, and if you are an independent or an unaffiliated voter, like two Both of us, us yeah. uh, <laughs> this is the worst time is because oh. I can tell you that my phone has been blowing up for the last couple of weeks with text messages, with phone calls from both sides of the aisle, from Republicans, from Democrats. It doesn't matter. I'm getting hammered from both sides just trying to, to get my vote and you know, frankly, I'm at the point that I'm, I'm done with all of the people that are currently in office that sent us through hell these last two and a half yeah. years. And then they come out begging for money. Yeah. Begging for contributions. So the world inflation's high all around the globe. You have all of this stuff that's happening and they're still asking for money when they're the cause of the problem. Yeah. Kiss my rear end. <laughs> it's not, you know, I do want to drop in a little bit of funny uh, development, if you will. So I, of course, I'm getting all of these, but you know, they're all addressed to your wife. Why is that? <laughs> I'm pretty convinced she put my number in somewhere. 
No, that that is funny. I send her a screenshot every time. I'm like, really? This guy? What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) It is comical to me. Uh, I do have some really fun news, though. I want to just pop a little positive stuff in here for you. We got a puppy last week. Oh. Man. <laughs> oh, she is the cutest little thing. We actually adopted her through a rescue. It's canine two, the number two rescue.org. If you are looking for a new little member for your family, a lot of people that listen to us, hi Greg, um, do rescue and foster homes and all of that. And what I think is really cool about that, you know, we've, we've picked out puppies all kinds of different ways, but the rescues are so thorough and they really did. This was probably the most thorough process we've been through. It was like two weeks. To, to be able to adopt this little dog. Her name is Dakota. She's the cutest thing I've ever seen. She is a wonderful dog. But um, I personally, you know, I believe like don't shop, adopt kind of thing. I mean, even your dog was adopted and she's yeah. a phenomenal, phenomenal friend. And I'm so excited to have a new little puppy as part of our crew because it's just fun. Well, no wonder you aren't getting any sleep. Oh, no, absolutely not. That is not my problem. <laughs> nope. My kids have taken care of her. There was I got up with her one night just because my kids had both been to, been to bed late, and I was up early anyway. So, <laughs> uh, But, no, I'm sleeping, man. It's great. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. And then one thing that uh, we'll be able to go into greater detail um, on next week that I'm excited about we did last year, we worked with the Avery Center and with Satori Tattoo and Burke's Tavern for a wonderful fundraiser for the Avery Center. And this year, uh, Satori, we're in talks with them on a specific date, but we're going to be able to do another tattoo event for veterans um, for Stillwater Ranch. I'm so excited for that. So we will have all the details for you as far as the dates and that sort of stuff uh, next week. But I just want to tease you a little bit. Absolutely. You know, we love Satori. They're just a, a great family organization. All of the artists over there are highly talented. They have several new artists that have come in, too. And got a lot of piercers and all kinds of stuff. I, we love those guys. Awesome. So, well, we appreciate you tuning in. And uh, as always, I'm your native, Alex Johnson. And I'm your transplant, Jen Bryant. We'll see you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.